the National Archives podcast series, Tracing Scottish Ancestors at Kew, presented by Audrey Collins. Tracing Scottish Ancestors in the National Archives, dot, 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 in England. It is not the first place that you would think of looking for Scottish ancestors. So... uh, uh, but part of my, my sort of lifelong mission to inform and explain is to um, make people think about looking for things that they might not otherwise look for. Um, and while you think your Scottish ancestry, you'll trace that in Scotland, and for the most part you do, we've actually got quite a lot of stuff here. Sometimes we are the National Archives of England and Wales, but sometimes we're the National Archives... Um, of uh, Scotland uh, as well because Scotland is part of the United Kingdom and where we have records that are uh, UK wide they often include uh, quite a lot of uh, things that are relevant to Scotland so these are the sort of things where if you're researching if you're sitting in Scotland researching your Scottish ancestry uh, when you come across some of these things you've got someone who's a soldier or a coast guard uh, you think, oh, I've got to go to Kew or I've got to you know, research in English sources. Or at least I hope people realise that. And if they don't, this is part of my mission to inform and explain, to make people realise just how much stuff we have here and some of it, fortunately, online that is going to be of help in tracing your Scottish ancestry. Now, you'll still have to use Scottish sources for your core records for births, marriages and deaths, testaments and parish registers and so on but and you won't be able to do your Scottish ancestry without uh, some or all of those and the Scottish census but there may be all sorts of things here that you can use with the the pure Scottish records and resources from other places uh, to make a, a complete picture. Now the records that we have here in the National Archives some of them are very obviously Scottish, that they've they've got Scottish, if not written all over them, at least they are catalogued as being particularly relevant to Scotland. Most of them, though, are in general series that just happen to include a lot of Scottish entries. And I've divided these up very, very roughly into online records um, to start with. And, And I'm mainly going to concentrate on the things that people can get online because there is a lot of it and it's something that more people can take advantage of. Documents Online um, is our own sort of in-house document delivery service, if you like, and these, this now includes far too many records to actually list them individually. If you go to the Documents Online homepage, you will find a list. In fact, if you go to the Documents Online homepage, you will find something that says what else is available, and that takes you to a full list, and it really is a very large list. Very high proportion of it is related to um, the armed forces, uh, not just the army and the navy, but even a, a little bit of air force records and merchant navy records of various kinds, and also PCC wills, which do have some relevance for Scotland. Most of the records, though, that are online are done in partnership with some other organisation. The principal ones at the moment is Ancestry, who have got a lot of our census records, but from a Scottish point of view, um, what's of particular interest are the World War I military records, and also the inbound passenger list. This is people coming back from um, Australia, Canada, America. And actually, as I've been researching bits of my own family, I'm sure other people have the same experience, just beginning to realise how many people went uh, to uh, one of the colonies but didn't stay. And I think now that these uh, passenger lists are indexed and online, I suspect we're going to be discovering quite a lot more of that. So the inbound passenger lists, which are on Ancestry, uh, may be of, of some interest to you, and I've certainly found some quite interesting things there myself. Um, find my past has the outgoing passenger list actually on a dedicated website called Ancestors on Board, but you can also access it through main Find My Past site. And also the 1911 census. Now, you might think, why is the 1911 census of any use? Because, as you will, may well know, the Scottish 1911 census 
is not going to be released until its 100 years is up, because that's under different legislation to the English census. So outside here at the National Archives, you can go and look at the English 1911 census. But the great thing about the 1911 census, as opposed to any of the earlier ones, is that for the first time, where it gives birthplaces, if the birthplace is anywhere within the United Kingdom, people are asked to put the parish and the county. Now, not everybody is going to obey the instructions, but on the whole, you will get in 1911 actual Scottish birthplaces, where in the past you probably only got Scotland. You do get some individual birthplaces in earlier censuses, um, but on the whole you don't because that wasn't required. In 1911, some people will just have some um, perverse ancestors who didn't put the parish in the county, but on the whole you will. This, incidentally, will be really helpful for Ireland as well. But that's why 1911 census can be quite significant because if you've got people who came from Scotland but you don't quite know where, um, then the 1911 census might be a very great deal of help. Even if you think you've got everything earlier than that, uh, 1911 could turn out to be very useful for that. Another one, uh, BMD registers for the non-parochial Records and I've given them their correct title there, non-parochial. They're usually referred to as non-conformist, uh, which is not strictly accurate. Non-conformist are um, non-Church of England churches, places of worship. That collection is called the non-parochial because as well as non-conformist, it also includes some Anglican records, but that are not attached to a particular parish. And being the pedant that I am, I like to call things by the correct name, even if I then have to stop and explain it. But it does mean that you too um, can impress or bore your friends with the correct definition. They are oh, they're not really nonconformist records, although that's what everybody calls them. They're non-parochial. And although these are basically English records, they do have some uses for Scots, as you will see when I show you a couple of examples. I'm going to start with documents online, and this is just the uh, search results. And just in case you wondered why this is going to be of relevance, if you do a search, and I've sort of cheated here, on the, the screen there I have put in the quick search box, Edinburgh. But you will see that this brings up um, 1,451 results in that collection. And that's just putting in Edinburgh. Now, Edinburgh is going to be the, probably the single biggest hit. But you can do the same with any Scottish place name, or you could try putting Scotland in. You'll see the results, so that these are, these are mostly described as Edinburgh Midlothian. So putting in Scotland wouldn't bring, bring up any of these. Um, but if you try with a few Scottish-type definitions, putting in Scotland itself, Glasgow, any Scottish county, or even, if you like, North Britain, which is what it's sometimes referred to as, there are a lot of wills in there that relate to people who were resident in Scotland. Now, there may also be uh, a corresponding testament uh, in the National Archives in Edinburgh, but don't neglect this because there may well be something. I, I've got a, a lovely example of one um, from a, a man who was, was Scottish. He lived in the, the borders, or he was born there, um, but spent most of his life as a land agent to um, a couple of extremely wealthy men in England and retired back to um, the, the borders, to his home parish. So if you were, were looking for him in Scottish records, you would find that he was born and you would find that he died. He never married, not in England or anywhere else. Um, and if you were just looking at those two, you would think there's a man born in Scotland, died in Scotland, left a testament. But if you actually look, uh, we have a PCC will for him because he had interests in England as well as in Scotland. Uh, and the great thing about PCC wills and uh, or any reasonably well-indexed uh, online resource is that it doesn't take you very long not to find something. So um, because it's a very quick thing to do, it's not scientific research, but worth a few minutes of your time to do a quick speculative hit-and-hope sort of thing. So you never quite know what you're going to, find, going to find, so it might be worth a shot. And as I said, that's just a, a general search, just to give you an indication of how much there is in there that relates to Scotland. 
This is another one of my favourites from Documents Online. One of the, the series that is on is Registers of Seamen Services. And this is um, uh, anyone who joined the Navy. Um, the records go from uh, 1853 up to 1923. And as uh, William Spencer, a military expert, says that the, the way the different services keep their records, they do them in different ways. And I think he said that something like that the Navy arranged things uh, according to when people joined, the Army by when people leave, and the RAF do it by numbers. Um, and this is a Navy record, uh, and I've picked that this is a Scotsman. He's not an ancestor of mine, although he is a relation of sorts. James Calderhead. Now, remember his name. You're going to meet him again later. And this is uh, his um, service record here, and you'll see there's a date of birth. That's not actually true. It wasn't born on the 15th. He wasn't born in April. He certainly wasn't born in 1896. Um, but the rest of it is true, and I do know it's the right man. I, I, I could give you the proof, but I don't think you really want to hear it. But anyway, there's James Calderhead, uh, who joined the, uh, the Royal Navy, and there he is in, in the First World War. And you've got a bit of a physical description of him and the various ships um, that he served on. And um, in, you know, there are lots of people uh, in the Navy who, who were with Scottish birthplaces. Um, this is one of the rare occasions I actually get to use my own family as examples. For years and years I've, I've been teaching bits about English genealogy where on the whole my family don't appear. But just once in a while I get a chance. So I'm going to indulge myself. But there's James Calderhead um, and there are lots and lots of other Scotsmen uh, in the Navy. And so anyone who joined in roughly a bit more than half a century uh, you can hopefully put their name into documents online uh, and get a nice service record up on the screen like that. Um, Another record that's on there is the Royal Naval Division, who were part of the Royal Navy, but they weren't on ships, they fought on land. And that one is my, that is my grandfather, that's David Donaldson. Uh, and there you see, there's a nice lot of information there. Uh, got his mother's name, his father had died by that time, and his address and his height. Um, he was a Presbyterian, uh, he couldn't swim, which is a real asset in the Navy. Um, and he had an eight-inch scar on his right thigh. So that's not bad for somebody that you wouldn't instantly expect to find in a record source in England and now conveniently online as well. Um, and I didn't think he was as tall as five foot four, but there you go. Um, and this is also um, his record, uh, Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. I've also got, his, he, I've got the full hat trick for him because he also eventually was in the, the Royal Navy, but it's not his uh, record that I'm showing. But uh, these are just, just examples of a kind of record that they've got Englishmen, Irishmen, Scotsmen, Welshmen, and um, a whole lot more besides. And, and this is just some of the highlights. I'm not going to list every single record that you might find somebody in. Uh, but this is just to give you some nice examples of the sort of things that you might find. And, uh, it's not just men. For the First World War, we've got very good records of some of the women's services. Now, this one is not related to me. I couldn't find any of my uh, female ancestors doing anything in World War I. Um, but quite a bit in World War II, but we haven't got those records, so I just have to pretend they're... I just have to ignore those. Uh, but there you are, that's uh, a, a woman in the Women's Royal Naval Service in the First World War. Um, her name was Annie Elizabeth Ferguson, and there you've got a date of enrolment um, and various details of her service, including um, her, uh, the address of her next of kin, who was her brother. So a lovely lot of information there um, uh, of a, a Scots person. And then um, this, these ones are even better. I've only shown you one piece of uh, information from here. But the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, this is just the first page of many. And there are huge numbers of these. Sometimes there are pages and pages and pages of records to do with one particular woman. And some of them are duplicates and some of them are you know, almost the, you know, an envelope with a postmark on it and nothing much else. But some of these have got really, frankly, far more detail than you might want to know especially if the woman happens to be your grandmother. I mean, some of it's a bit gynecological, frankly, but um, it is a huge amount of information. And one of the things that you will often find with records relating to women is that they are often described in relation to some man or other, whether it's their husband or a brother or a father. So um, while you might find that um, sort of you know, demeaning to womanhood, 
it's awfully useful genealogically if you know that whenever you've got a record of a woman, you'll get um, some sort of tie-up uh, with, with a man, whereas with records relating to men, you don't so often um, get a sort of cross-reference to, to a female. Uh, so that was just one example. But this particular record I have looked at, and it does go on for many pages. And Some of them, you get the medical examination, these women joining the forces, and it will tell you whether or not they've got nits and that sort of thing. And, um, uh, re- references. They write to former employers uh, to ask for references about you know, how this uh, person's uh, demeanour was as a domestic servant or whatever it was. And some of them are beautifully detailed. Uh, you can sit and have a lovely little browse for ages. I mean, I recommend you go and do that if you haven't got any very pressing research jobs. As soon as you leave here, go out there and play on documents online, have a look at some of these, and also some of the other things. But um, the, these women's uh, auxiliary army corps records are a particular favourite of mine. Now, a bit more First World War. On ancestry, they have got um, the service records for um, the, well, at least most of the surviving service records for the uh, enlisted men of the ranks in the First World War. And although this is a particular series that I've got the, uh, the search screen up for here, they're not actually pension records. Um, they are records that were recreated from other documents which include pensions. But this one, there he is again, James Calderhead. I told you to remember him. And he very definitely did not get a, a World War I army pension. And this is his actual record. Again, there he is, James Calderhead, uh, Scottish Rifles, and uh, his birthplace, which is White Inch in Lanarkshire, basically it's part of Glasgow, um, as it was on the, the Navy thing. Um, this is um, 1914, and he's claiming to be 19. Um, and and um, there you get his address. And there, there are a few more pages of this record, but that, that's just the, the, the front bit of it. There he is. Um, and this is a, a bit more of it. He wasn't actually in the army terribly long time because uh, you'll see there's all this various scribble on here, but the, the notable bit here is um, date of birth according to birth certificate, 25th of March 1901. Actually, it wasn't. It was the 25th of March 1900 because I've got a copy of his birth certificate. Um, but he was indeed 14 years old when he tried to join up in 1914. Um, and then a few months later, somebody, quite possibly his mother, caught up with him and he got thrown out. Um, I'm not going to show you every single document, but he did exactly the same thing later in 1915. He tried to join up in autumn 1915, lying about his age. Same thing happened, joined up about six months later. They caught up with him and threw him out again. And I only discovered very recently when yet another series of records went online, this time the Royal Marines records, which are now on Documents Online. In between his two attempts at joining the army, he had a go at joining the Marines. Um, They only took a couple of weeks to suss him out. Um, So he was actually thrown out of the army twice and the Royal Marines once. And then eventually, if you can remember back, he did join the Royal Navy. And he stayed in this time, uh, at least until after the war. Um, And after that, he joined the Merchant Navy. But I haven't pursued that one yet. So... um, uh, and anybody who makes jokes about Glasgow must have been a place he really, really wanted to get away from. Well, he'd be shown the door immediately. Uh, although, frankly, in 1914, it probably was. Uh, but again, there are lots and lots of records just about this one particular man. And um, if you've got Scottish ancestors who were of military age in the First World War, it's certainly worth having a look to see if they're there, whether they might be in the army records or in the Navy records. And of course, although a lot so many of the army records were destroyed, what did survive were the medal cards. Now, you won't always be able to identify uh, the right man from the medal cards, but you may be able to, and it's something. And in fact, with one of my, um, my grandfather's brother, my grandfather joined the Navy, and one of his brothers joined the army, and very sadly was killed in, in 1917. Um, And he was a young man, never married, and I managed to establish exactly which of the six George Donaldson casualties on the Commonwealth War Graves was actually him by using a combination of records, some of which are here. Um, I used medal cards. Uh, I looked at the service records. I didn't find him, but I managed to eliminate at least one of the other possibilities 
by looking at the service record. And that's always a useful thing to remember. Whatever sort of record you're looking at, you don't just look for somebody who is your ancestor. Sometimes you can look and eliminate suspects from your inquiries because you find somebody who definitely is not your person. So you can cross them off your list. But the combination of uh, the, the medal card and uh, Commonwealth war graves, soldiers died in the Great War, uh, and, and a couple of other sources, I actually managed to identify exactly which one was him. So don't give up. You never know. So that was quite a lot about the, um, the, the First World War. And there are other military records... But the, the principle is, is the same. The, the World War I service records that survive are online. Earlier ones of people who came out of the army before 1913, they are not, although they will be. They're in the process of being digitised at the moment. So when all of that series goes online, that's just going to be wonderful. Um, what you can already do for the earlier period, um, roughly 1760 up to the Crimean War, the records aren't online, but they, a lot of them are searchable by name within the catalogue. And again, you can put in a name um, and restrict your search to WO97 or WO121. I'm not going to bore you with a great list of document references because the handout that I've given you actually lists some of the series that have got substantial amounts of Scottish content in. So they are series that might be worth looking in and pursuing uh, and also finding the research guides on particular subjects uh, to trace uh, your Scottish ancestor if he was in any of the uh, services that were covered or if he took part in certain events that might be covered. So there is quite a lot that you can do. These are online records, but there are still other things that you can do using a, a combination of more old-fashioned methods but looking in the catalogue and just plain ordering up documents and looking at them. Different tack altogether, though. Find My Past have got the outgoing passenger lists. And this is for sailings from UK ports to destinations outside Europe. So this is the great waves of migration going to principally to North America and to Australia and New Zealand. A lot of Scots in particular went to New Zealand uh, and Canada. Um, but to absolutely anywhere. And these are just, uh, they, these include obviously Scottish ports. The, the big ones are Glasgow and Greenock, uh, but you've also got them from Ardrossan, from Ayr, from Leith and Stornoway. And um, it's the Irish who have the great name for being um, migrants, but an awful lot of Scots emigrated as well. Uh, the Highlands clearances um, were pretty instrumental in that. If, if you think of what happened in Ireland uh, about food shortages, not just specifically the potato famine, but the fact that there, was, there, were, there were too many people and not enough, uh, not enough cultivation or not enough food could be grown to feed them. A lot of what is well known about Ireland, very, very similar things happened to the highlands of Scotland. Uh, so you get huge, great waves of people leaving. Now, unfortunately, the passenger list that we have weren't systematically kept by the Board of Trade until 1890. So there, is a, there are a lot of migrants who are too early for that. Um, although there are, there are records that you can pick up, but there is no nice big series. Um, but there were still lots and lots of people leaving Scotland um, as late as that. So you may find your ancestors going off to America, Australia. And... Even if your ancestors went and, unlike some of mine, didn't come back, of course, they may well have descendants in America, Canada, New Zealand, wherever, who are now tracing their ancestry. And sometimes it's worth trying to work out where people went and see what happened to their descendants because you might be able to find information in uh, overseas sources that relates to your own family back in Scotland. And in fact, you, you may even uh, make contact with people. So it's worth looking on things like Genes Reunited and Ancestry Family Trees and, and such like. Um, because they, they may have uh, bits and pieces of information, sometimes even photographs and memorabilia. Uh, and it's quite good to be able to try and track people uh, on the, the, the passenger lists as people go out.
And this is uh, an example of one of the documents. This is one of the more legible ones. Um, but this is... Uh, it's typed, which is a nice thing. But it, it's... Uh, if you could get close enough to read that, which I know you can't... Basically, this is a, a lot of, of young, single people. Um, and I think they're mostly men. Um, but they're all, they're all uh, setting out from, uh, from Stornoway. Um, and that's... Uh, I mean, that, that's... That was their actual last address. It wasn't uh, just where they were leaving from. So boatloads and boatloads of young single people going off to uh, to, to colonise um, the, uh, uh, you know, the North America. In this particular case, they, they were going to um, Quebec and Montreal. And uh, you know, who knows what happened to them. Some of them will have come back. I discovered with a, a branch of my own family, to my great surprise, I've got this photograph, this very sweet old couple sitting outside their cottage in Montrose. And I knew that their, several of their, their children, including my great-grandfather, had moved from uh, the, the Forfa to, to Glasgow. And I thought, oh, these sweet old people, they just stayed there. They didn't venture to Glasgow. And I discovered, to my great surprise, that their youngest son, uh, who had a fairly distinctive name, actually went to Canada. And they went with him. This sweet old couple that I thought never went very far turns out were actually farming in Minnesota for 13 years and then they returned when they were quite old. I mean, they're about 70, which was not a bad age. Um, in about, this was about 1902. They actually came back to Scotland. So um, sailing into Glasgow. So I hope they stopped off and you know, said hello to their other children who were settled there. Uh, but that was a complete and utter surprise. Um, and I have the incoming passenger list uh, showing them uh, arriving back in Scotland. So um, your, your mi migration wasn't entirely one way. Sometimes they came back, and I, I've got at least you know, one or two other examples of people who went and then came back. So that's just a little bit about passenger lists. That's an outgoing one. Um, but don't neglect the incoming ones. You might find some, some clues on there. Now, I mentioned a bit earlier on uh, BMD registers and the non-parochial collections. And these are mostly, if you look at the catalogue, you will see that these are basically English or English-looking sources. Um, there is a, there's a collection of foreign churches in RG8. Um, but on the whole, they are English, English and Welsh. Now, this is an example this um, is, is a, a birth, of, well, there are actually three on here, um, but there's an Isabella, daughter of George Pearson, from Dumfries. So although, mo and this is in the um, Wesleyan Metropolitan Registry of Births. Um, and this was a London registry, but anybody at all who was of the Methodist persuasion could register births there. Now, on the whole, they are people with English addresses, very largely in, in southeast within easy reach of London, which is exactly what you'd expect. But you do get people from absolutely anywhere. Um, I even found uh, you know, people who are abroad um, having children's births registered with the, with the Wesleyan Metropolitan Registry, or the other famous one, the, the, um, the one that is inaccurately known as Dr. Williams, but it's what everybody recognises it as. But there you are, this one from Dumfries. And this is um, another Isabella. It's one of the names we like in Scotland. Um, Isabella Graham, or Isabella Weems Graham. Um, and this is wonderful because this is a, a good old um, Dr. Dr. Williams one. Um, daughter of Peter Graham and Isabella Ferrier, his wife, who was the daughter of Thomas Weems Dundee. Not bad. Um, it also uh, points out that she was, uh, she, she was born in Germany. So um, we got around as a race even then. Uh, but this is in, registered at Dr. Williams Library in London. But there you are. You have the child of Scottish parents born in Germany registered uh, at Dr. Williams Library. So it's a source that you will mainly find English people in or English um, people of English descent there you are. Not the only one by any means. It was just an example I picked out. And even registers that are actually in England, 
This is uh, quite a nice one. This is actually um, a Woolwich register. You have... Now, what have you got at Woolwich? Lots and lots of soldiers. And where do a lot of them come from? Scotland. And they are Presbyterians. So this is a Presbyterian register in Woolwich. And if you actually look, you will find there are several examples um, on, on there of uh, the, the children of uh, Scottish Presbyterian soldiers all being baptised at Woolwich. So, and they're all in uh, the uh, BMD registers collection. And it's not obvious, if you were just looking at an index, that these, uh, that these are Scottish people. But when you actually look at the, uh, at the registers themselves, there you are. So there's quite a lot in there. I don't know how well they've been explored. But if you've got uh, somebody Scottish who was in the army, and frankly, if you've got Scottish ancestry, you've got some soldiers in there somewhere. It's a rare Scottish family that hasn't got some service people in it. Um, this is somewhere you might just think of looking. It, on any catalogue that you care to name, or any list, it looks like an English source, because it's a place in Kent. But it's a place in Kent that has got lots of Scottish people in it. So... Worth a look. Well, that's a bit about um, some of the um, armed services. But we have some other records which actually relate to government services that are not military. And two of the, the really big ones here are the Coast Guard or Preventive Service and Customs and Excise. Now, with the Coast Guards, um, some of these records... You can actually get online. They're not nice and easy to search, like just dropping a name into documents online. But they are part of a, a, project, a sort of a pilot project um, called Digital Microfilm, which is where we have records which we already have filmed. They were filmed quite a long time ago. And they are sitting there in a nice format, which is relatively easy to digitise. It's a bit more complicated than that, but basically if you have a roll of microfilm, you can feed it through a wonderful great big machine which will scan the whole thing. The bit that takes the time and the money is actually going through it and indexing it. So this, is, this has not been done with these. But if you think of digital microfilm, it's the equivalent of coming here or going to somewhere that's got the films, looking up perhaps one index on film and then on the basis of that going to another record and looking up the reference that you found on the first film and then finding the record. Now, that's something that I'm sure a lot of you will have done here in this building and in other places using actual physical rolls of microfilm. The Coast Guard records, you can actually do that online. You have to find a page. Just instead of um, feeding a roll of something through a machine... You are looking at, you're, you're turning electronic pages instead of turning a handle. But the principle is the same, and these are actually free on documents online. And I did do um, a, a, a sort of check on this, a, a piece of research that I did many years ago uh, on a, a Coast Guard. And I actually just repeated exactly what I'd done about 20 years ago using microfilm, or using the digital microfilm. And I think it's actually proved quite popular as well. So um, that's something that can be done at a distance online. It's a little bit more labour-intensive than uh, just using one of the Ready Index series. It's very good for the grey cells. And you can find out about Coast Guards. Now, Coast Guards um, and Customs and Excise were two sorts of organisations where uh, there was an actual policy of moving people around for the fairly obvious reason that you did not want people getting terribly chummy with the locals because they were there to police them in some way. So uh, they, they were actually moved round and put where, as far as possible, they didn't have any existing contacts or relatives. So if you've got uh, a Scotsman who joins a Coast Guard or the Customs and Excise, there is a fair chance that you will find him, at the very least, in a different part of Scotland, or quite possibly somewhere around the Irish or the English or the Welsh coast. So these are Britain-wide services, and they moved. So you might well find people um, in the Coast Guard. Quite a lot of Coast Guards um, also had previously been in the Royal Navy. 
So if you do find somebody in the Coast Guard, and you know from documents that they were in the Coast Guard, look at their records, but it may well turn out that before they were in the Coast Guards, they were also in the Royal Navy, which you might not have known, and that's something that's worth pursuing. Customs and excise, um, that's it. this is a little bit more complicated. That We have customs and excise records here, and there, but there are also some Scottish customs and excise records held in the National Archives in Edinburgh. Unfortunately, the records relating to probably the most famous excise officer, um, whose 250th birthday we are celebrating all year, uh, Robert Burns, um, his, uh, he, he's one of the National Archives of Scotland's very own burnt records, unfortunately. Um, so you will find very, very little about him in anybody's records. But for most customs and excise, there is a split. It's not always easy to work out whether something will be in the National Archives in Scotland or whether it will be here. Sometimes it just doesn't seem to be all that logical. Um, and, of course, there are some things which are in local archives as well. But if you've got somebody who is in either of these services, Coast Guards or Customs and Excise, it's worth having a look to see what, if anything, we have got on them. We have got research guides on, um, well, on many subjects. In fact, the handout that I've given you, as well as listing some uh, record series that have got a lot of Scottish content, also lists... Um, all our various research guides. We've got about 300 research guides and there's a fair old list of them on there that may be of use to somebody who is tracing Scottish ancestry. Um, and uh, the, the Customs and Excise and the, the Coast Guard ones are, are a pretty good reading. Of it. You, you really do need them to try and sort out where things might just conceivably be. Well, what I've looked at so far are mainly sources which are UK-wide, but have substantial Scottish content in. But I did mention at the beginning that we have also got uh, some records which are very, very specifically Scottish. Now, within some of the military series, you will see that there are some chunks of records that are specifically to do with um, Scottish uh, parts of the records. Um, but there's one series of records which I'm not... I don't like these very much, but uh, we do, unfortunately, have an awful lot relating to the 45 Rebellion. Uh, I visited the battlefield site at Culloden uh, last year, and uh, while I didn't come back knowing a huge amount that I didn't already know, I came back absolutely mad as hell with the entire Stuart dynasty, and in particular Bonnie Prince Charlie, really has an awful lot to answer for. Um, and uh, you know it, it, it's a terrible, sad, and sorry tale about uh, what, what happened to the, the whole uh, way of life of the Highlanders, um, who, whose end was hastened by uh, um, Bonnie Prince Charlie's not terribly good generalship. Um, the one sort of silver lining is that the whole dreadful, sorry episode did create a huge amount of paper, and we have a lot of records relating to. Um, particularly to the many, many prisoners that were taken um, in the course of the rebellion and after the, uh, during and after the, the, the battle at, at Culloden. And this is just one example from many where there are lists and lists uh, of prisoners that were taken. And the, there's, uh, the, there's quite a lot of detail about them. And, of course, some of these are, you know, some of these are the great and good. They're titled people. There are clan chiefs. There are officers. But there are also some fairly ordinary people um, who are just, you know, farmers. Um, quite a few farmers on there, and servants of one sort or another. There's a tailor, husbandman, and a barber. Lots and lots of information there about people who, um, you know, followed, possibly followed their clan chief or someone else that they owed loyalty to. Um, and it did them no good. And there are this, this particular one is a list of prisoners sent from Inverness uh, all the way down to uh, Tilbury Fort while they decided what to do with them. Some of them were transported. And, of course, at that time, transportation was to America because we hadn't fallen out with the American colonies at that point. Um, and there is an awful lot of information in there. Again, we also have research guides on that. Another document from that particular bundle... 
Um, it's unfortunately it's too hard to read because some of it's one way round and some of it's the other way round. Uh, but the, uh, the the sort of cover note on that is evidence given by two men who basically turned King's evidence. Um, they plea bargained and uh, dropped some of their, their former allies in it. And there were quite a lot of documents of that nature as well uh, that obviously put uh, um, made them an offer they couldn't refuse or something like that. Um, and there, there was a whole lot there. And uh, that, that's a, it's a very, very sorry episode in Scottish history, um, but it is very well recorded with lots of names on it. I haven't sorted out my own family. I do have some Highland ancestry, but unfortunately, uh, tracing them is a little bit like doing Welsh family history. In, in a lot of ways, you know, the landscape is not dissimilar. Um, and you have uh, a whole lot of people who have um, a fairly strict naming pattern and a very small pool of uh, surnames and an equally small pool of Christian names. So you'll get um, places, well, parishes. But parishes in Scotland tend to be very, very big. I mean, the parish of Inverness is about the size of some English counties, I think. Uh, but there are lots of uh, smaller settlements within it. But even within some of these smaller settlements, you'll get half of them are called Duncan Fraser and the other half is Mary Fraser. So uh, by the time you've... Uh, you're very difficult to unpick your Fergusons and your Grants and your McDonalds. So I haven't been terrifically successful as yet with my Highland ancestors. So I haven't got them out of the 19th century yet. But you know, one thing at a time, I'm doing awfully well with the Glaswegians, so I mustn't be greedy. Um, but for people who have been lucky or persistent enough to trace some of their Highland ancestors back into the 18th century, these are the sort of records that might turn out to be very useful indeed. And of course, at that period, the population of the Highlands was um, larger um, th than it is now. Um, so it, it's not quite the sort of empty land that it very, very quickly became. Just to rub this in a bit... Uh, as a good example of a completely different kind of record we have, there is a lovely plan of the battlefield of Culloden. Um, this map was actually uh, drawn in, in 1746, um, and it makes it all look terribly nice. It wasn't. Uh, but it's just a, a particularly picturesque example of the many, many maps we have in our collection. Um, I mean, our map collection is absolutely tremendous and probably doesn't get the... Um, the attention it deserves. I've just picked out this as an example of a map relating to Scotland, but there are many, many more. On our catalogue, anything that is a map has actually got the word map included in the catalogue description, which means that if you put in a, any sort of place name and map as a catalogue search, it will bring up any maps that we happen to have on that. And a lot of the maps that we have are in classes like this one where maps have been found in other record series but they've been folded up in with something else and they've been taken out and conserved and put into a separate uh, class by themselves for good conservation reasons. And you, you can have all sorts of fun as putting in any Scottish place name that you're interested in plus the word map and seeing what comes up. And you would be surprised just how much there is. Um, so that, that's a, a nice little um, hobby for long winter evenings with the, with the computer. But it really is amazing what we've got, covering all sorts of dates. And for um, the, the, the years immediately after the Battle of Culloden, um, the uh, Hanoverian government army, having made its point, um, made jolly sure that it didn't have to make it again uh, by fortifying the highlands and keeping the highlanders down. Uh, and they built this absolutely magnificent um, structure of, of Fort George, which is just outside Inverness, and is an absolutely amazing place to visit. When I was up um, at Culloden on, the, on my way back to Inverness, I went to the fort, which is absolutely amazing. And it, it is still um, an army barracks. It's very strange. You go around and half the people there are tourists with, with the audio guides and the other half are squaddies. Um, so it is an actual army base at the moment and, and it's, a, it's a terrific piece of military engineering never saw a shot fired in anger and they have a very nice um, exhibition there in, in the, the sort of visitor centre uh, with lots of plans and drawings well of course I came back here and I had a look in our catalogue and we too have a lot uh, of uh, maps and plans and correspondence relating to the construction of the, this, this huge, great complex at, um, at Fort George. 
Though if you are going to search on that, you'll have to put in Fort George and Inverness, otherwise you'll get all sorts of Fort Georges in all sorts of far-flung bits of the empire, which may be terribly interesting and are quite probably full of Scotsmen too. Uh, but if you're interested in the, the Fort George Inverness, uh, that's very interesting. And although it, he's not technically a Scotsman, so I can't really include him in this, but I do have an Irish ancestor who was served in a Highland regiment and uh, he, he left Ireland and joined the army in Scotland, joined a Highland regiment in the Lowlands. I have no idea why, but he did. And although uh, he, he, he served in the peninsula and he got half his jaw shot away, and it was very uncomfortable for him, but he was very briefly stationed at Fort George um, in about 1808. So I actually went there last year, 200 years after he was there. Um, yeah. It's not research, but there is an awful lot to be said for going to somewhere that you know somebody was there. And the reason that I knew he was there was um, he, he had a, a child baptised in Ardesia Parish Church, and there is absolutely no reason whatsoever uh, to be in Ardesia unless you were um, at Fort George, and he was in the army at the time. And I've also been able to look at the muster rolls which we also have here, for his particular regiment. And, um, okay, he's an Irishman, but a lot of the people he served with were Scotsmen. So I mentioned the actual army service records, but, of course, there are lots of other things. There are uh, the muster rolls as well. So huge numbers of records, and, of course, they include regiments while they were stationed anywhere in the empire, really, but, of course, they include a lot when they were stationed in, um, in Scotland, whether or not they were pacifying the Highlanders. Different kind of map altogether, jumping right forwards again to uh, really where we came in. This is an example of a, a trench map from um, a war diary of um, part of the Highland Light Infantry. Um, this particular one happens to be... Um, one of the ones that is uh, on documents online. Most of the First World War war diaries are original records uh, that you have to order up, but a few of them are actually online, and, and this is one of them. But again, they are an absolutely invaluable source, and for your First World War ancestor, you may not have a service record. You've probably got a medal card. With a bit of luck, even if you've got minimal information about him, you can probably... Uh, uh, Find, find his unit and what it was doing uh, in one of the war diaries. Actually, having a map is a bit of a bonus. The war diaries themselves are extremely interesting. They're just not as visual as the map. But um, if anything, they're possibly more interesting than the service records themselves. And we also have another overlooked collection. We have got a wonderful collection of images, um, photographs, pictures, um, which I think we should make a lot more of. And this is one, um, I, I, just, I just like this one a lot. I just think it's a lovely picture. of Pullers of Perth Dye Works, well-known name in Scotland. And this, this is in copy one, which is absolutely full of images. Now, there's very little of that that is actually online. A few of the images are online on our website, but copy one is very well catalogued. So again, you can drop in places and I'm a big fan of getting background, looking at the supplementary sources, because if you're doing family history, it's all very well getting lists of names and dates. But in itself, that's not really interesting. What makes people, or makes the dead come to life, if you like, is finding out about them, where they were what the place was like, what they did all day, what their occupations were. And one of the ways to do that is to look and see if you can find any pictures, whether it's photographs, maps of the place where they lived, or um, you look at the size of that place. A lot of people must have worked there. Uh, so if you had an ancestor who did, this is a nice little bit of uh, supplementary illustration. Um, and although just because it doesn't have somebody's name pointing to a window on there, like a seaside postcard saying, this was our room. Um, it's, still, it's still a valid family history source. And it's the sort of thing that you might well find in, in our image library or in, in our collections of um, photographs. 
And uh, the, the final photograph, um, this is a bit of a World War I theme here, but um, you know, there's, uh, there's an awful lot of history, so I thought I'd just focus on relatively short periods of it. Um, and this, I think, is an absolutely splendid photograph um, showing the construction of airships in the First World War. And I think that's absolutely magnificent. I mean, it's just a wonderful photograph. I think, you know, as, as a composition, I think it's magnificent. And that, um, unlike the previous one, that's not in the Copy One series. That is actually in the um, Air Records, so Air Force Records. So there is an awful lot there to find. I have just about tippy-toed over the surface of just some of the sources we've got that might have something interesting in them for your Scottish ancestors. Um, I'm not an expert in quite a lot of these records, in fact, most of them. But what I am good at is finding stuff. There are other things I haven't mentioned, and I have listed some of those on the, the handout that lists some of the record series. And if you look in the research guides, you will see that there are things in there that may well have um, relevance to your Scottish ancestry. And if nothing else, what I hope I've done with this, as I usually do with talks that I do, is not necessarily given you some thundering piece of information that you didn't know, but given you an idea for something that you might go and look in and explore that you hadn't previously thought about. And if, if even half of this huge capacity crowd I'm addressing um, go and do that, um, I, will be, uh, I, I will be very pleased. I will think it would have been worth my while turning up, and I hope you thought it was, wor you thought it was worth your while turning up too. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 3rd of February 2009 at the National Archives, Kew.